You know, it's always a challenge when you're preaching a narrative and trying to do a character sketch of one of the main people in that narrative to know how many verses you have to read and what you can get away with summarizing. And so uh, I decided after much wrestling that it would be best to break this morning's reading up because there's really no way to uh, summarize or to shorten the reading of these first 17 verses. They're sort of foundational for the rest of, uh, of the text. And so uh, I decided to kind of break the reading up. We just had sort of the first part of the, of the story, and we sort of leave uh, Naomi in a cliffhanger, having lost uh, both of her sons uh, and her husband. And I want to pick up with verse 8, and I'll be reading through verse 17, uh, which of course is a critical juncture in the story where Ruth commits to go with Naomi, and then I'll summarize later uh, in my remarks this morning, I'll summarize the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, and this is the word of God for the people of God. On August 27th, my parents will celebrate 45 years of marriage. Their way of celebrating this momentous milestone in their lives is to take me and my family to Disney World. I'm good with that. This is good. Um, if anything, I was probably a stumbling block to my parents making it to 45 years of marriage, especially in my adolescent years, but that's a sermon for another day. But nevertheless, despite the fact that not only did I have anything to do with this achievement, I probably uh, almost thwarted it at times, nevertheless, they're celebrating by taking my kids and I to Disney World, which I could probably uh, never afford to do. Now, you know, uh, you have to understand, with my dad, Planning a family vacation requires roughly the same degree of coordination as planning the D-Day invasion. 
Some of you may be like that. Some of you may have dads like that or family members like that. My dad is always like that with our big family trips. But that is particularly true for Disney World. I mean, if you've been to Disney, especially any time, say, within the past uh, 20 years or so, you know that if you're going to spend that kind of money, you better plan ahead or you'll spend most of your Disney World time waiting in line. So my dad insisted that we both had to get the unofficial guide to Disney World, which if you're a Disney fan, you know that the unofficial guide is really the guide. But anyway, uh, they produce a new one every year, you know. So the one that we had from the year 2000, that's ancient history now in Disneyland. The last time we went, that's obsolete. So he insisted that he got one and I got one because, you know, he's in Spartanburg. So that when we're planning and coordinating and having our strategy sessions, we would literally be looking at the same page. Now, thank God he decided uh, where we were going to lodge early on because we'd had to debate and discuss that. I mean, Lord have mercy. We'd probably never get there. But I have probably read, I don't know, a couple hundred pages of this Disney World guide, and we have now booked, you know, all of our dining reservations and our fast passes and created a touring plan so that we can beat the other fan. You know, it's like a competition, you know. Let's see if I can beat the other parents so my kids can ride more rides, you know. We've got all that worked out, and I'm sure we're going to have a great time. It's hard not to have a good time at Disney. You know, Disney is known for many things, but at the heart of it all is the ability to tell stories. Fundamentally, that's what Disney does. They tell stories. In the early days, uh, they told stories and put stories to movies that existed long before Walt Disney ever drew Mickey Mouse. Stories like Cinderella and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. They took these stories that we had been uh, passing down to, ki to kids for generations in our society and made very lovable and likable, enduring and endearing movies out of them. And now I was raised on those movies and I want my kids to be raised on those movies. And when you go to Disney World, of course, there's so many things going on. But really, ultimately, it furthers those stories. It's a different way of telling those stories, and we love it, and we pay a fortune for it, and we spend hours watching the movies and singing M-I-C-K-Y and so forth, right? Uh, we can't help ourselves. You know, everybody loves a good story, and we make fun of Disney World because all of their stories have a happy ending, right, with a nice little bow tied around it, a very, you know, logical, you know, fun uh, story that kind of tidies up and, and ends well. But, you know, that's really hypocritical of us to criticize that because who likes stories that don't end well? I'd love to know. Nobody, right? I mean, you might watch the occasional movie uh, that doesn't end well, but you probably won't watch it again, and it probably won't become one of your favorites. I mean, we just intuitively like stories that end well. To a larger extent than we realize, especially in the Western world, we have been shaped by the narratives of Scripture. We have learned many things from Scripture, but one of them is how to tell a story. The Bible itself is a cohesive story from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and we find, of course, that with the new heavens and the new earth, it has indeed a very happy ending. And within the Bible, we find microcosms of that, little short stories like the one we have before us with Ruth this morning. Little short stories that resonate with us, that form and shape who we are, that teach us to ask questions, that teach us about God and about life and all of these things. The Bible has taught us how to tell a good story, and we all like a good story. Ruth presents itself perhaps as the very best example of that in the Bible. Uh, Ruth, the story of Ruth really has everything. I mean, it starts with famine, which, I mean, then as now, that's a major crisis, you know? I mean, for me, skipping a meal is, you know, roughly equivalent to famine. That's, I mean, you know, if I, if I have to miss lunch, I mean, whoo, I don't know if I can handle it. You know, but can you imagine a real true famine in a day and time long before 
modern agricultural techniques and food storage techniques. I mean, this was really scary stuff. And so as a result of that, they migrate. Now, uh, there again, I mean, migration today is very scary. When I took this appointment, I had to migrate from Eastover, which is 35 miles away, and it almost killed me. Uh, we're fixing to migrate again, by the way, to Irmo. But anyway, you know, any moving, of course, is inherently scary to us. But can you imagine uh, back then, Elimelech deciding we gotta make a break for it to put food on the table, we're going to Moab. Now Moab, as we'll discuss in a minute, was the enemies of Israel. In Judges chapter three, we find that Moab was one of Israel's oppressors. So this wasn't like going to Georgia, okay? Although for you Carolina fans, Georgia at times might be an oppressor. But anyway, um, you know, this wasn't like going just to a neighboring state or to, you know, your cousin's house or something. Uh, although the Moabites were very distant cousins to the Israelites, they were longstanding enemies. So this was a big deal. So we've got migration. Then Elimelech dies, we've got a widow with her two sons living in this foreign land, and then they intermarry with these Moabites, and then they die, and then we have this widowed uh, elder lady, Naomi, having to make this tough decision to go home, and Ruth decides to go with her, and then you, know, you can imagine what a journey that must have been. And then later in the text, you may or may not know how the story ends, but we find that they go back and Ruth is sent to glean in the fields. Now then as now, gleaners are people who are so poor that they pick up what the harvesters have left. And in the Old Testament, we find God explicitly ordering the farmers to on purpose leave some stuff so that the poorest of the poor will have something to eat. And that's where Ruth is, that's where Naomi is. For whatever reason, Naomi doesn't even go to the field to glean. We don't know if she's too old or whatever. But Ruth goes into the field as a gleaner, as a beggar, as someone who is destitute and desperate, a foreigner, a widow. And yet she happens to catch the eye of a very wealthy man named Boaz. Boaz takes one look and likes what he sees and investigates to find out who she is and she finds out who he is. And uh, lo and behold, come to find out that Boaz is a close relative of Elimelech. Now catch this, Ruth never even met Elimelech. Elimelech was the father-in-law who was deceased before she even married one of the sons, right? But because of Boaz's kinsman, close relationship to Elimelech, he is eligible to redeem her, which back then meant uh, that he could marry her and further the line of Elimelech and keep the land in the family. This is not like some sort of sketchy thing like we might think of it today. This is a good thing, and it actually protected women so that they'd have someone looking out for them, you see. And you might know, you might remember, that there is a closer kinsman. We don't even know his name. He's a loser, whatever he is. But he doesn't, all we know about him is he doesn't have enough money to buy the land and take on the responsibility of a wife and kids. Um, and so whatever, he, you know, he gives his right to, uh, to Boaz. Um, of course, he has not yet laid eyes on Ruth, so you know, maybe if he had met her, you know, we never know what would have happened. But anyway, the point is, Boaz redeems Ruth, buys Elimelech's field, keeps it in the family. She, he and Ruth get married, and they have a son and live happily ever after. Now, that son's name is Obed, which is, um, you know, this, this family's not, not good on names. Malon, Chilion, Obed, we're not doing well with names. But Obed is the father of Jesse, who in turn, of course, is the father of King David. So not only do these widows go back and find themselves taken care of by a very wealthy kinsman redeemer, not only Ruth, uh, a Moabite and a widow is now married, not only do they have a male heir to carry on the line, all of that is true, all of that is wonderful, but to make it even better, they now find themselves in the lineage of King David, who we all know is the greatest king Israel ever had. And when we get to Matthew's gospel in the first chapter, we find what? 
that Ruth and Boaz are in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. Now, how's that for a happy ending? <laughs> isn't that a happy ending? That's awesome, isn't it? Now, it's interesting, though, uh, you know, like all great stories, uh, Ruth does not happen in a vacuum. Nothing happens in a vacuum. You remember when you were in high school and they tried to teach you, like, how to engage with a text and they taught you all those conventions and figures of speech and, you know, you forgot it all immediately, right? Uh, well, one of the rules of engagement, of course, is to learn the context of a story. What's the context in which this happened? Where are we on the pages of the Old Testament? Well, you remember, of course, in the early first five books of the Bible, Moses is the great leader and he leads the people out of slavery and tries to lead them into the promised land, but of course they sin, and so they're sent into the wilderness wandering. And then Moses dies, which is very scary, only leader they've ever had. But then Joshua becomes the leader and Joshua does a good job and they take uh, the promised land in the book of Joshua. It's a pretty awesome book. Things are not perfect, but things are really good. Overall, uh, Joshua ends on a positive note for Israel. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't last very long because then Joshua dies, and unlike when Moses died, nobody rises up to take Joshua's place. So we now have a vacuum in leadership, which is never a good thing. And so we get the period of the judges. Now the judges in the Old Testament are not, you know, somebody who wears a robe and bangs a gavel and pronounces on the Constitution, um, half the time getting it wrong. But anyway, uh, the judges in the Old Testament are military leaders, occasional, periodic military leaders. Uh, a judge did not pass his authority on to his son or anything like that. What we find in the book of Judges is the same formula again and again and again. The people will sin by worshiping another god and get themselves in trouble. They forget their god. And so as a result of that, God punishes them by putting them under oppression of a foreign power. And then they go, hey, wait a minute, let's get back to our God, and they repent, and they cry out to God, and he sends a judge, a military leader, uh, to rally the troops, so to speak, and to vanquish the enemy, and they're delivered, and things are good, and then when that judge dies, the cycle repeats itself. History has a way of repeating itself because we forget uh, about history, don't we? Uh, I said a moment ago, of course, that Ruth is a masterpiece story with a very happy ending. Judges is on the other end of the spectrum. Judges would be more like a horror story. <laughs> Judges is purposefully disheartening and discouraging. When we get to the end of Judges, we should be aware that things are not going well for Israel. Things are falling apart. The last sentence in the book of Judges is, of course, the lens through which the story is told. Another good rule of engagement for reading things. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not only the last sentence in the book of Judges, it is also a repeated refrain. Something completely crazy and twisted and bizarre will happen. Some of them will do some crazy evil thing. And then it will say, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes as a way of explaining this to us. This, by the way, is supposed to set the stage for the next thing, which is in 1 Samuel 8, when they say what? Give us a king so we can be like the nations around us because look what happened when we didn't have a king. And then, of course, we find that, hey, the kings aren't so great either. So there's a reason why this is the interpretive framework for the book of Judges. So when we get to the end of Judges, we should be uh, discouraged about how this thing is going. But you know, tucked away between Judges and Samuel, we have this awesome story of hope. This awesome little uh, self uh, story that sort of stands by itself, the story of Ruth. A story of hope, a story of possibility, a story of God's faithfulness, a story of God working out his purposes even in the midst of a chaotic time.
And so it is not an accident that in the very first verse of this book, we are told this happened during the time when the judges governed. While chaos was breaking out, while people were making it up as they went along, God was still in charge. Even when Israel didn't have an earthly king, God was still on the throne of the universe. Even when the nation of Israel seemed to have no plan, God was still in the process of working out the plan of redemption that he set into motion before the foundation of the world. I must confess that I am guilty of overlooking the book of Ruth. Uh, I would dare say most of my colleagues are as well. You know, I used to teach high school Bible. And in my Old Testament survey, I am sad to say we did not cover Ruth. Part of that is because it does not introduce a new chronological era. It happens within a much larger chronological era of the judges. It does not introduce any new theological themes or covenants or anything of that nature. And so it's easy to skip over. But what a mistake that is. I've been reading Ruth several times in recent weeks in preparation for our time together this morning and wrestling with it in commentaries and thinking about Ruth more than I ever have in my entire life. You know, in seminary, I took a class just on judges, a whole class, and we didn't even talk about Ruth, and I still had missed this, even though I had studied judges in such depth. Ruth functions as this counterpunch to the negativity of judges. It's like, all is lost. No, it's not. God is still on the throne. God is still working. Things are terrible. Yeah, but look what God is doing over here in Moab through these, un, you know, these people we've never even heard of before. These people that do all this. I mean, wow. What a witness it is in the middle of chaos and turmoil and, and confusion and sin. What a counter witness that God is still up to something. God is still working. God has not forgotten his people even when they have turned their back on him countless times. What a beautiful story this is. What an oasis in the midst of a spiritual desert. Another good interpretive rule for reading the Old Testament is, and this is important for Ruth, uh, that many times in the Old Testament we are not given an explicit evaluative statement of the behavior that is being described. Sometimes we are. Like, especially in the kings, sometimes the, the narrator will tell us this was a bad king, right? So that's pretty, that's pretty clear. But oftentimes, the behavior is simply described, and we're supposed to know that it's bad. It'd be like if I told you a story, and I said, and then so-and-so had an affair. I would not need to explain to anyone in this room, by the way, having affairs are not good. That's not a good thing, right? You would all know that. Right? And in the same way, the Old Testament writers wrote from a frame of reference and in a culture where everyone would have known this is good and this is bad because they were a part of the covenant that God had made with Israel and God had made his behavioral expectations clear. And so the writers assume they don't need to tell us if the behavior is good or bad most of the time. Now, why is that important for the book of Ruth? We tend to fall prey. Uh, to thinking that, well, if these people are in the Bible, they must be pretty good. But you know what? That's not really the case. So we, we read that there was this man named Elimelech, and he moved to Moab because there was a famine in the land. And we think, well, you know, if there was a famine in the land, I'd probably move too. I can see that. No problem. And, you know, he died, and then his sons married the Moabites. Well, I mean, there weren't any other girls around, yeah, you see. But that's not what is being said. We're supposed to know that that is not good, appropriate behavior because the Israelites were not supposed to leave the promised land. Heck, they just got the promised land. They weren't supposed to leave the promised land, obviously. Uh, and certainly not to go and, you know, caress with the enemy. This would be like defecting 
This would be like, I don't have faith that God is going to provide for us uh, in this land that he's just given us, so I'm taking matters into my own hands and moving to Moab, you see? And intermarriage, especially in the Old Testament, was viewed very negatively. Why? Because God did not want the foreign wives to draw their hearts after foreign gods. And you'll remember later in the Old Testament with Solomon, we find that's exactly what happens. In his old age, Solomon took many wives to himself, and they led his heart astray from the God of Israel. And so intermarriage is not a good thing. So Elimelech makes the mistake of moving to Moab, and then his sons, who really probably haven't been raised up in Israel very much, and being in the era of the judges, goodness only knows what they even knew about the God of Israel in the first place, and now they intermarry. This is not going well. And then then they're dead. I mean, this is shaping up to be a disaster. But God is still on the throne, and God is still working. You know, we titled this series, a, a, a story of unexpected kindness. And of course, we find Ruth uh, being the main human character. God is really the main character overall, but Ruth is the main human character. We find her doing some unexpected kindness to Naomi. I mean, nobody expects her to go back. I mean, you know, and Naomi even says, why go with me? I mean, you know, what are you thinking, right? No one would expect her to do that, so she does the unexpected kindness of going above and beyond. But ultimately, the one with the unexpected kindness is God himself. The one with the unexpected kindness is God himself. Because these are not people that God ought to be using, you know? These are not the cream of the crop that we would say, I bet God's working in their life. They're so holy. I mean, can't you just see that guy in ministry? No. This is a Limelech who's like, I'm out of here. I'm taking matters into my own hands. I'm making a break for it. I don't trust God. I've got to go to Moab and look out for me and mine. And this is Malon and Kilion who are like, well, I know we're Israelites, but, you know, that'd be too much effort to go back and find a girl there, so we'll just go ahead and get married to these Moabites, even though we're not supposed to. But God works in unexpected people. How many of you can bear witness to that this morning? How many of you would say, you know, I did this, I messed up my life, I was on the wrong path, I did things that should have, you know, ruled me out for kingdom purposes, and yet God has still used me. Jeff and I were talking, he was whispering to me a moment ago about lifting up the kingdom things, the gospel things that are happening through this church. It may only be that you're here on Sunday and you're giving and you're doing a few things, but you know what? God is using that in ways that you don't even know about. You see what I'm saying? God is working. There might be people watching you that you don't even know are watching. You see? God uses unexpected people. Heck, I mean, I shouldn't be up here. That's one of the things that I pray so frequently. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God and Savior of the world, have mercy on me, a wicked and sinful man. And especially on Sunday mornings, I find myself praying, Lord, you know that I have no business being up here, but use me anyway (laughs) for your purposes, not for my sake, you see. God works through unexpected people, even people with weird names like Malon and Kilion and Obed. God works in unexpected times. God works in unexpected times. These were not the times when we think God ought to be working. This was not like the economy was doing well, the military was doing well, everything was great, and we could sense the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah, brother. That is not the case at all. Nothing is going well. There's famine in the land. Israel is committing idolatry repeatedly. By the way, one of the gods they're worshiping is Shemash, we're told in Judges chapter 10, the God of Moab, right? Things are not going well, but even in the midst of chaos, his eye is still on the sparrow, and the hairs of Elimelech's head are all numbered. God works in unexpected times. God works in unexpected places. 
Moab, it's not even part of the promised land. I mean, you know, we just finished the book of Joshua. We took the promised land. Shouldn't we be working here, God? No, we're working over here in Moab. <laughs> you see, you never know where God's going to show up <laughs> or what he's going to do next. God works in unexpected places. God works in unexpected ways. I mean, who would have thunk it that God would choose a Moabite widow named Ruth who for some unknown reason comes back to Israel uh, with her mother-in-law and, and marries Boaz, who by the way, Boaz, you know, is the son of Rahab who was a prostitute and a Canaanite. So neither of these people uh, are pure-blooded Israelites. Mo Boaz was basically what you'd call a half-breed, a half-blooded Israelite and Ruth is a Moabite, and yet God is working through these people to bring about the redemption of the world. God works in unexpected people, unexpected times, unexpected places, in unexpected ways. He's the main character in this story, and I think the ultimate challenge of this story is that we would make him the main character in our lives too. But now on the human side of things, Ruth is the main character, and there's a lot that we can learn from Ruth this morning. First of all, I think we find the key to Ruth's character in verse 14. I'm going to read it for you again. This is right when they're making the decision. Naomi is going back. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah kissed, but Ruth clung. I want to present to you this morning, friends, that sometimes if we're going to step into the destiny that God has for us, if we're going to put ourselves in a position for God to use us for kingdom purposes, we're going to have to be cleavers, not kissers. You know, Jeff was talking last week, he's been talking about this sermon series we're going to do on Joshua uh, next, next uh, year, and he's saying that they stepped out of being wanderers into being warriors. And are you a wanderer or a warrior? I wasn't in here last week, but I understood. I understand that he said that. Well, the question for this morning, friends, is are you a kisser or are you a cleaver? You know, uh, the history of Western art would not be intelligible without the Bible. The Bible by far has dominated uh, art. I would love to know if some great painter has ever painted a masterpiece of Orpah perhaps popping a kiss on the cheek of Naomi and Ruth maybe down on all fours clinging to Naomi's leg like my kids cling to mama when they don't want her to go. Orpah kissed, but Ruth clung. And I think that's the key to her character, that when the going got tough, she did something that did not make sense. She did something that did not make sense. I don't, we don't know where Ruth was spiritually. She was raised up worshiping the God of Moab. And Naomi even invites her and Orpah both to go back to worshiping Shemosh. There's really no expectation that she is going to remain uh, as a follower of the God of Israel. But apparently the Spirit of God had enough of her life that the Spirit of God was able to stir in her and say, Ruth, I want you to cling to Naomi even though it does make a lick of sense. And I find in my life, friends, that sometimes the faithful decision makes sense, but oftentimes it does not. Oftentimes it does not. Oftentimes it's counterintuitive. Oftentimes it cuts against the grain of what our culture would encourage. Sometimes it even cuts against the grain of what our parents would encourage. You know, recently, I think it was in the, in the auditorium, I wasn't in here, but I preached on that verse where Jesus says, if you love your father or mother or brother or sister more than me, you're not worthy of me. And we see that so clearly here with Ruth, don't we? That type of absolute abandonment. Lord, I'll do anything for you. Just say the word. I am your servant. I will obey. Orpah kissed, but Ruth clung. 
Another question that I think this raises, friends, is who are the Naomi's in your life? Who are the Naomi's in your life? Who are the people that you have made a decision to cling to? Who are the people or are there people that you have invited to speak into your life? That you've said, you know, I want you to pray for me and with me. I want you to hold me accountable. I'm struggling with this. I want to be in Bible study with you. I want to go to church with you. I want us to go on a mission trip together. I want to be involved in the kingdom work with you. I want you to cut on me and me to cut on you because iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And same true with women, of course, you see. Are there anyone like, is there anyone like that in your life? Uh, I find that everybody needs that. Now, some of you may be Naomi's. I know last week Faye commented that she is a Naomi in terms of her stage of life and also in terms of some of her experiences. And so you ought to be having somebody cleave to you. <laughs> you ought to be the type of person that people want to cleave to, the type of person that's got some wisdom to pass on to the next generation. But I also want to say to you that no matter where you are in life, no matter how old you are, no matter how rich you are, how accomplished you are, it does not matter. You should still have a Naomi in your life, too. You ever heard of a guy named Billy Graham? That's supposed to be a joke. Um, I went to a Franklin Graham concert one time and they introduced his brother, who was like a farmer. He inherited the farm, family farm and he said, I got a brother who's a preacher. You might have heard of him, you know? Everybody's heard of Billy Graham, right? World figure, probably the greatest Christian leader of the 20th century, author of how many ever books, led millions of people to Christ, founded institutions, served on boards, you name it, he's done it all. Everybody knows what Billy Graham is, right? Let me tell you something. Billy Graham has a pastor. And the reason why I know that is I know him, Dr. Don Wilton out of First Baptist Spartanburg. And I know for a fact that he and Billy Graham speak frequently and that Billy Graham has invited him to speak into his life. And Dr. Don is 35 years or some odd younger than, than Billy Graham, but it doesn't matter, you see. It doesn't matter. Let me tell you something. If Billy Graham needs a Naomi in his life, I know I need one and you do too. You understand what I'm saying, friends? that you ought to have some people you're cleaving to, and you ought to also be the type of person that people want to cleave to. Who are the Naomi's in your life? Who are the Ruth's in your life? Friends, Orpah kissed her goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Another thing that I want to show you this morning is the nature of Ruth's commitment, the absolute radical abandonment of Ruth's commitment. You know, I have uh, conducted weddings and, and given wedding homilies. I've never used this text before, these verses 16 and 17. I have heard them read at weddings before. Even though it's uh, two women, it doesn't matter because it speaks to the ultimate commitment, the ultimate absolute commitment that we can possibly make as human beings. And so I think the next time that I conduct a wedding, maybe this will be my text. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. It doesn't get any more radical than that. I mean, there's no level of commitment that goes beyond that. You know, one of Naomi's biggest fears, of course, now as a widow would have been, who's going to care for me in my old age and who's going to see to it that I get a proper burial? And that's part of Ruth's commitment. I'm going to go back. I will care for you. I will die with you. And I will be buried next to you just as your husband originally or, and or your sons originally should have been. I will fulfill that role. It's an absolute radical commitment. And does that not foreshadow exactly the type of commitment that Jesus asks us for in the gospel? If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Save but a kernel of wheat, fall to the ground, and dies. It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, 
it produces much fruit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the great Christian martyr who lost his life in the attempt to stop Adolf Hitler, said it so well, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And is that not what Ruth says here? I will go wherever you go, whatever the cost, whatever it takes. There's no limit. There's no turning back. There's no maybe. There's no escape clause. There's no fine print. There's no, you know, I might do this if or, but if this happens, I'll have to reconsider our arrangement. It's an all in whatever it takes. And friends, sometimes we want to make a commitment to God, but we want to make a half-hearted commitment. We want to make a, like St. Augustine said <laughs> in confession, St. Augustine famously said that he looked back on his early life and realized he was praying, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. That's not the type of commitment that God is looking for. That's the type of commitment that come, has become normative in our culture, but that's not the type of commitment God is looking for. He's looking for an all in, I am willing to die for this thing. I'll do whatever it takes. No limit commitment. Orpa kissed. But friends, Ruth Klong, are you a kisser or are you a cleaver this morning? This is a costly commitment too. You know, uh, Jeff mentioned a moment ago about Adrian Dupre being here uh, at, at uh, staycation this week and uh, challenging our youth and leading so many of them to Christ. And I had the opportunity to be here uh, on Monday night to hear him. It's the fourth time I've heard Adrian give that same sermon. Doesn't matter, still a great sermon. And he says, uh, one of his great lines is he says, you know, you do crazy things when you're in love. So you can relate to that if you've been in love. You do crazy things, right, to show your love. And then he asks, what crazy thing have you done for the Lord lately? What crazy thing have you done for the Lord lately to show that you're in love with him? Ruth does a crazy thing here, right? A thing that in the eyes of the world doesn't make any sense at all. But the Spirit of God was stirring and moving in her heart. And she says, I'm going to go where you go, lodge where you lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. What is your faith costing you? Is the commitment you've made to Christ, is it sacrificial or is it just convenient and comfortable? Because friends, uh, I don't know what your Moab is. I don't know what it is that is the decision for you between this and that, you know? I don't know what that is in your life that might be holding you back from being more committed, more fruitful for the gospel. But I do know this, we're all called to leave our Moab if God calls, you see. We're all called to leave our Moab if God calls. Uh, you know, I, I really treasure, and the longer I live and the more I preach, I really treasure the ambiguity of the Bible. We don't think about that a whole lot. We tend to think sometimes, yeah, this is the story, and, and we can see why it was this way and so forth. And we kind of, you know, uh, read it through familiar lenses, and we sort of know what we think it means and so forth. And, and frankly, sometimes we get lazy. You know, there's many times in the Bible, though, where we're not told what this means or why this was, and it could be different than what we've assumed. We have assumed, in this case, uh, that you know, Ruth's sacrifice, the nature of Ruth's sacrifice, was primarily you know, having to leave and that it would have been great if she had stayed in Moab and her, you know, we maybe have an image of her mother and father and sisters crying, which we don't know. And maybe that's true. That's certainly the way we normally read the text uh, and the way this is normally taught and preached, and that's possible. But you know, we're not told anything about Ruth's home life. We are told that she marries a foreigner we are told that she goes back to a foreign land with her mother-in-law rather than returning to her house. And Naomi very curiously refers to her mother's house rather than her father's house. So what's up with that? Is her father dead? We don't know. But I mean, nobody would have referred to it as your mother's house back then. So that's a very strange verse to say the least. So I want to present to you this morning uh, the possibility that maybe Ruth's home life was totally dysfunctional. 
And maybe the sacrifice of leaving wasn't that it would be great if I went back to Moab, but rather at least it would be the familiar dysfunction that I know and that I've grown accustomed to rather than the hopeful, unfamiliar, stretching future of going back with Naomi. We don't know. But I present that to you this morning because for some of you, the call to leave your Moab and be faithful to God will be like we normally read the text. It will be, well, if I did this, it sure seems like it would be awesome, but I feel like the Lord's calling me to do this. But for some of you, it might be that the Lord is calling you out of familiar dysfunction that you've grown accustomed to, and at least you know it, even if it's terrible. And we do that, don't we? We accommodate ourselves, we adjust ourselves to situations that are unhealthy and toxic and dysfunctional, but at least they're predictable, and at least we know them. And sometimes, if we're going to faithfully respond to God, we've got to leave that behind, even though it's scary. And it's entirely possible that that's the sacrifice that Ruth is making this morning. Friends, Orpah kissed, but Ruth clung. You know, I don't think anybody has ever named their daughter Orpah. There is one case in our culture today, but they got the letters out of order. Uh, we do not have a book of Orpah in the Bible. My grandmother was named Ruth, and it's because Orpah kissed, but Ruth clung. And if we're going to step into the destiny God has for us, friends, we're going to have to learn to cling to the right things and say goodbye to the wrong things, even when it doesn't make a lick of sense. Final thought on Ruth is this. Ruth embodies the universal nature of the gospel. I mean that both in terms of the story and I also mean that literally in terms of Ruth's flesh. Ruth is a Moabite. The Moabites descended from Abraham's nephew Lot through an incestuous relationship. They did not have good bloodlines. <laughs> this was not a, you know, a good thing to be a Moabite. This was not like a prestigious name or something. She's a Moabite, she's poor, she's a widow. She comes back to a foreign land and she marries who? The son of a Canaanite prostitute. And they do what? Further the line of the greatest king that Israel ever had and ultimately of the Messiah himself. That, my friends, embodies the universal nature of the gospel. That God is not just using and not just seeking to redeem people that look like us, think like us, act like us, talk like us, and have the same socioeconomic status as us. God is seeking to redeem every man, woman, and child that has ever breathed. And in the Old Testament, we find... God is doing that primarily in and through Israel. In the New Testament, we find that God is doing that primarily in and through the church of Jesus Christ. But the, the goal, the driving thrust is the same, that God longs to save everybody. And in Revelation, the end of our good story of the Bible, we find what? Then I saw, and I looked, and there were people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue around the throne giving glory to the Lamb. And that, my friends, is the ultimate thrust that God is after. What a, what a great word that speaks to us, that God used this Moabite and this, this Canaanite son uh, to further his purposes. What a great word that speaks to us in our culture where we have so much fear, so much hatred, so much suspicion and violence and all these crazy things that are happening in our world. That God can still use you. He can still use me. He's still in business. He's still on the throne. And he's still working his wonders to perform. I think the ultimate challenge for us this morning out of the book of Ruth is that we would just place ourselves in the hands of God and say, God, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do, even when it doesn't make sense. I'm going to go where you want me to go. I'm going to be who you want me to be. I'm going to speak out and speak up for you. I'm going to repent of this sin and get over it. I'm going to do whatever you want so that I might be wrapped up like Ruth was in your eternal purposes. If we do that, friends, 
I trust that our life story will have a happy ending.